We are going to uh, start our, our look at the book of Samuel. Uh, the book of Samuel was originally one volume, as was Kings and Chronicles, but they've split them up for different reasons. We don't need to go into all that, but we're going to look at 1 Samuel, probably uh, finish this uh, this year, and uh, and then hopefully we'll take a look at 2 Samuel later on. But um, we're going to start with 1 Samuel today, and, and this is just an introduction into what these uh, beautiful books uh, are teaching and what uh, they want us to know. So you have the, the text in your scripture, in your uh, bulletin, so take a look at that. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's kind of long, but pay attention to what's, what's really the big picture, what's going on here. Now hear God's word. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, son of Elahu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Penina had no children, but Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not much more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, and she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of God. All right, so why in the world would you study, well, first of all, why read a lengthy uh, chapter like this? But why would we study biblical narratives at all? What's the point of these stories and why are they there? You could look at a a biblical narrative and say, well, it's exemplary. It's it's showing us what uh, people in the Bible, what they did and what they did good and what they did bad. And so we use them as examples. In other words, we should be like Hannah or be like Samuel uh, or be like David, you know, to just serve as an example. And so you find uh, connections with your behavior and with your life. And some of that, of course, uh, is true. You could look at these narratives as just raw history. In other words, as modern people, we're looking back and we're saying, okay, these, these authors who are authoring these stories are just writing a narrative so we know what happened. And uh, that is also true, but not really getting at the point because, believe me, these passages are extraordinarily brief. I told the Sunday school this morning, think of the life of Abraham. 175 years he lived. There was a huge, complex story to his life. And yet we only have 13 chapters about Abraham and it's very, very precise. The authors... Whoever they were, Moses and, and the people of Moses' school, the scribes that surrounded him, and, the, and the, the elders that surrounded him who were remembering and codifying these stories, they were picking what they wanted to put into these passages. They're not comprehensive. If they were comprehensive of all the history of the life of Abraham, how many volumes do you think would have had to have been written for somebody who lived 175 years and traveled halfway across the Middle East and did all these, had three wives, he had dozens of kids. Amazing. So we have to think, what is the story telling us? What is the point? Why is this being said? And so we want to look at these stories like that. Some people take the Bible and they say, well, this is an owner's manual. This is the way I'm supposed to live. Terrible. The Bible is not an owner's manual. It is a collection of stories written by ancient people going back 3,500 years, maybe more, written for a certain audience, for a certain reason. And we get to overhear that and then take those truths and apply them to our lives. So there's more complex than just these things. And what we're doing in Sunday school and what we hope to do also in church with the book of Samuel is show you the historical redemptive threads 
that run through these narratives. The, why they're there. What, what's the point of these being in our Bible? What do they mean to us modern people? It's beautiful. Listen to this quote from Richard Phillips from his uh, The Reformed Evangelical Commentary. Is that right? Did I say that right? REC? Reformed what? Expository, not evangelical. Yeah, we didn't. Expository, thank you. I don't have this commentary. Dawson has it, so I have to borrow it from him. His library is better than mine. And it's more organized. And I, I don't like even going in his office. It makes me feel inferior. <laughs> no. Now, you've got a great collection. Okay, listen to this from this guy's commentary. As literature, Samuel is unsurpassed in richness of its plot, the complexity and depth of its characters, the intensity of its action, the profundity of its lessons, all the more when we realize that Samuel is not a fictional tale, but a true historical narrative. These people lived on earth. These events happened in our world. Homer and King Arthur inspire us through their fantasy world of heroes and maidens and monsters. But Samuel's importance lies not only in that it's a story, but in that it's true. It forms a part of the unfolding story of God's salvation, the historical redemptive story of God's salvation. The people of God, now listen, this is important. The people of God had lost their way spiritually, politically, militarily. And in the previous book of Judges, it says that after Joshua's generation, Joshua brought them into the promised land, that after that generation died away, there arose, listen, there arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord And then Richard Phillips says this, forgetting the Lord, forgetting is the greatest evil that can befall any generation. Now, what he means by forgetting is not that it just completely goes out of your mind, it's back there, but forgetting is that it is not given the place. He, the Lord, The gospel of our Lord is not given the place in our lives that it deserves. That we've somehow compartmentalized the Word of God. A lot of people come to Christianity and they say, I've got my life going on here, but there's a few areas that are a little messed up and I need some help, so I'm going to add God to my life, kind of plug Him in as an app. And I'll have that part of my life. I have, always have him to go to if I need something. And, and you may even elevate it. Maybe on the first page of your phone when you swipe. The Lord is on that first page. But he needs to be the whole, not a part of our lives. We need to suffuse our lives and remember him. If you noticed in the... The, uh, one of the things you do in inductive Bible says you mark words. There's a lot of words about forgetting and remembering in this one passage. Because the people had forgotten the Lord and His gospel, His truth. 
Not entirely. They had all the, the law and all those things going on. They didn't forget those. But they were not applying them to the life. God did not have his place in their life. So we're going to look at three things very quickly. And this is just by way of introduction. You notice these motifs or themes. Uh, I don't like the the word topic, but I I think motif serves here uh, very well. And this motif is one that runs throughout Scripture. The motif of barrenness. Then there's a second motif, the second thing we'll look at. The motif of barrenness and yet beloved. Barren, yet beloved. And the final one is the way that God reverses uh, barrenness and reverses that barrenness motif. So let's look at the first one real quickly. Uh, Forgetting the gospel is not passive. It's not like you just let it slip. It's active. We are actively taking things in our lives and pushing them into places um, of importance where, uh, and and we don't bring the Lord along with it. We just kind of keep it off on the side. What we try to teach you is that every part of your life is worship and every part of your life is to be consecrated to the Lord. And so Dawson and I have both told you it's not a good idea to say, okay, I'm going to put God first and then my family second and then my church third. You create some sort of a uh, an Aristotle scale of being a high, you know, these things are really important and they, they kind of fall out like that. If you do that, you will fail because you can't always keep something number one and then number two, number three, number four. Better to make God central to your life in everything you do, no matter what. So God is central and your family and your work and your career and when you break your neck falling off a bicycle, He's still central. When you get up and you go to your mundane job that you hate, He's still central. If you don't, then you end up forgetting him. It's easy to prioritize and then forget. And that is not what he's trying to do. Hannah's life was a mirror. It reflected the life of the nation. And God very often does this. He goes in his story. By telling a story, he chooses a a protagonist in the story or an antagonist in the story and he's telling the story so that you and I as human beings can relate. Every one of you knows probably some woman who has struggled wanting desperately to have children and not able to have them. And you know the emotional uh, weight of that and the, and the pressure it puts in. In the ancient world, it was especially sharp because a woman was measured entirely on whether or not she could bear children and whether or not they were male children. And this has gone on for millennia. Even in our modern world, there's still this stigma attached. God is not bringing his light of redemption to the stigma What he's saying is, in this story, the barrenness of this woman, this godly woman, godly husband, godly family, reflected the condition of the land itself. The people themselves, they were barren. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. 
Panina had children, Hannah had none. This is not saying, by the way, that it's okay to have two wives. This is one of those things you learn in, in, in hermeneutics, how to, how to understand this. This is a descriptive passage, not prescriptive. It's not telling you what to do, it's telling you what was. Right? Okay, so for you polygamists out there, I'm going to go see a lawyer. Uh, the idea of barrenness was, it was so thick and rich and deep in the ancient world and in much of the world today, it was so profound of a concept that for someone to be barren was like they were on the outside. They were not loved, not blessed, not worth anything. They were just superfluous. Their life didn't have any meaning, didn't have any weight. They weren't a success. They were a failure. They were very often stigmatized in their culture. They were weak. If you wanted strength in the old world, the ancient Near East, you had lots of children, lots of male children because they could make money and they could carry weapons and they could take care of the mom when the dad died and and they could rule and reign and do all kinds of stuff, provide for. To be barren, wow. And yet, in your Bible, with almost no exceptions, these stories always go and pick somebody who's weak, Some woman who's barren, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. What is he saying to us? He picks the second son. It's not Abel, it's not Cain, it's Seth. Abel gets killed and Seth is the next one, the third son in line. It's not the strong. It's not the majestic. It's not the beautiful. It's not the fruitful woman with the, the she gets pregnant, just her husband doesn't even have to have any relations with her. He just looks at her and boom, she has a baby. God loves the barren He loves the weak. He loves those of us who are struggling. He loved this nation of Israel. He told them in Deuteronomy, I didn't pick you because you were so great or so numerous or so mighty. I picked you because you were weak and you had no hope. You were slaves. You had nothing. I came and saved you. This is Exodus 19. I was like an eagle and I came and I rescued you with my majestic wings. I covered you. I helped you. I saved you. You were barren. You had nothing. Then comes Exodus 20. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. How crazy are we to get those backwards? I say, I rescue, of course there's no other gods but me. But they forgot. And every one of us, folks, we are in danger of forgetting. I've gone through seasons of my life, even even as a pastor and even recently where I just have, I 
start to forget. And God is so gracious. He loves the barren. So the barrenness motif is powerful. And the beloved of the barren is powerful. Look, Elkanah gave portions to Penina and all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. You see, in a normal situation, the husband would marry a wife. She gave him children. Great. She didn't. What was the answer? Go get another wife. And if she gave you female children, go get another wife. And if she gave you no children, you keep going on until you get what you want. And although the... Elkanah comes across as a very sensitive husband. I think he was. I think he was a good man. But he didn't understand her bitterness. God's love for her was, is stunning. He loved the weak woman. He loved the barren woman. And Elkanah, in some way, he reflects that. Elkanah loves the barren woman. He gave, took care of Penina for sure. But he loved Hannah. But Hannah's bitterness is also stunning. Look at verses 6 to 8. Panina mocked her grievously. You can imagine what, ugh, I mean, how many of us guys, we can't even handle one wife, much less two. And some of these guys had half a dozen, and you want more. And you wonder, what in the heck is going on? Well, we'll get into that later. This is nothing good about polygamy. Right? Say amen, please. Nothing good about it. It sure happened, but it was never something that was, oh, this is wonderful, let's do this all the time. No. Hannah's bitterness is, is stunning. Look at what she says. Panina provoked her grievously, and Hannah wept. She wouldn't eat. They're at this feast with all this. Once a year, they have this magnificent meal, and, and Hannah would weep and not eat, and she was sad. And he would come along and she's like a t- he's like a typical husband. Aren't I worth more than ten sons to you? Oh, please. No, ab- you want the truth, Elkanah? No. <laughs> you're really not. You are not that, you're not all that, right? You're not all that, brother. I like you fine, but eh, I'd rather have ten sons. So get with it, all right? Really kind of cute. Am I not worth more than ten? No, you're not. So her bitterness is stunning. But notice also that her bitterness is followed by a response, which is also stunning. And this is one of the things that I think we need to hear in our day. This, a consecrated life to Jesus Christ is um, it's, it's rare today. You don't find people that are all in. In other words, you don't find churches, not here, Our church does this, and we're very proud of it in a good way, that teach radical repentance, radical brokenness. Radical repentance means not just feeling bad about your sin and beating yourself with a whip. Radical repentance is 100% 
loathing, hating, your sin is odious, it really bothers you, but 100% running to, turning to, embracing, throwing your arms around God, not running away from Him when you fail, when you're barren, but going to Him. And churches need to learn this because we are the continuation of these fathers and mothers of our faith. And her response is stunning. Look at 9 and following. She goes to the temple. She's deeply distressed. She's praying and she's weeping bitterly and she's making a vow to God, O Lord of hosts, I look on my affliction with your servant. Do not forget. What is she saying? Do not forget. Forget what? Your promises. The promises in Deuteronomy was if you follow me, if you trust me, I will open your womb. You have so many kids, you won't be able to keep your kids. You'll have so many flocks, you won't be able to keep all your flocks. You'll have harvest, bumper crops of harvest. The land will flow with milk and honey. This is the picture. That's a poetic picture to be sure, so you don't want to get too crazy with trying to make it rock literal hard and all that stuff, but you want to understand that God was communicating something, follow me and all things will be well with you. He's telling him, remember, the nation may have forgotten you, lots of people may have forgotten you, but I have not forgotten your promises. And I'm here and I'm saying, you promised. I've told many of our fans, I've done this with my own kids when they've gone sideways. And I've told parents this, and I'll tell you again. If your kids go sideways or something goes sideways in your life and you're on your deathbed and you're getting ready to gasp your last breath and think you're getting ready to go and you don't know what's going to happen all these people in your life that you've been praying for and that are dear to you, the last breath should be to God. You promised You promised me. You promised me the life of my children. You promised that you would take me into your presence. You promised. Not how great your faith is, not how good you've been, but how great and how good is His promise. This woman, wow, do not forget your promise. But if you will give me a son, listen to this, If you give me this child that I long for so much, I will give him back to you. And no razor will ever touch his head. In other words, the consecration, she didn't say, I'm just going to come and, you know, baptize my little baby or I'm going to dedicate him if you're in a Baptistic church. I'm just going to kind of give him back to you, sort of. No, I'm going to consecrate this child. I'm going to take that thing that's dearest most precious, most important to me, the thing that I have wept bitterly and been vexed all my life. I'm going to take that. You give it to me and I will give it to you. Not just on occasion here, I, you know, visit church once a week on Sunday. I'm going to bring my kids. How cute. No, I'm going to take him there and give him to you. And he's going to be a Nazarite. In other words, the consecration is to a Nazarite vow that he will never cut his hair, never drink wine, that he will be completely and totally given over to the Lord. She was going to give up her baby She didn't know she'd ever have another one. No guarantee of that. In fact, the track record wasn't so good. 
Her response, folks, is stunning. Now, I've had to do that. I know some of you have many times in your life you're going to come to places where you have to reorient yourself and reconsecrate your life. The churches, I believe one of the problems in our churches, we don't, we don't consecrate ourselves to God. At Christ the King, we have repeatedly at various times, we've called you, all of you, that, that, that this building is not Christ the King, you are. To quit fiddling around with God. Steve Brown used to tell us, don't shilly-shally. Any of you know what that means? Shilly-shally? It means fooling around, fiddling around. You know, just, eh. But embrace, you will have, the, the, the joy, the, the glory, the happiness of your life, the, 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 the ability to feel sorrow and pain will deepen. But also the joy and the gladness. You can start looking at your work and saying, I love this. Even while you're looking for another job. You know, I really love this. I'm doing this and I want to do it for the Lord. Everything can become suffused. You're giving everything over to Him. And I tell you, we we need this individually, but we need our churches. I've begged you as the congregation... Let's be different than all the other churches out there that we see going, doing weird stuff. Let's focus on the gospel, not forget what God has called us to. Wow. Well, very quickly, her response is stunning. But there's also a stunning amount of blindness in this passage too. And you see it here with this literary foil of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. Hannah prays. Eli, here's the, the high priest. He's the big poobah. And he's looking at this woman. And this man, a man of God, man anointed, ordained, whatever you want to call it, he's supposed to know the difference. And instead, he sees this woman and all he can think of, she's drunk. She must be a Presbyterian. Well, she's drunk. And he scolds her. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And her answer to him is humble, but pretty straightforward. No, my Lord, I'm troubled in spirit, pouring out my soul to the Lord, speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. He is so blind He is a clergy, a shepherd of the people, and he is so blind, he doesn't know the difference between a drunk and somebody praying out of the vexation of their soul. So clueless that he has no idea. And a lot of us have been in churches where those are the kinds of shepherds you have. Clueless. They have no idea what's going on in the culture no idea what's going on in their lives, read their Bible once in a blue moon. You don't have those kinds of elders or pastors, but all of you have experienced that. Where it seems like they're clues, they don't know what is going on. This blindness is actually explicitly explained later. And, and the way they do it, the way the, the text does it, it explain, talks about Eli later, we'll get into this, Eli was fat and he was also blind. 
His fatness is, was a reality. He was overweight, but he was also fat because his family was robbing the people. You'll see it in the next few chapters. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were robbing the people, taking advantage of their position for riches and money. And he was blind. He couldn't see. He couldn't see what his sons were doing. He couldn't see the pitiful, barren state of his people around him and the desperate need that they had. He wasn't feeding the sheep like Jesus enjoined Peter and his apostles. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. At your own expense, feed my people. Wow. And then finally, the reversal of barrenness. Look at 18 through 20. This is beautiful. She went away. Her, ate, her face was no longer sad. She ate and she worshipped. Then she got back home. Now, notice this. This is a woman whose confidence in God was supreme. She knew him. She knew he wouldn't forget. He knew that her plea meant something to him. And before she ever has, has uh, relations with her husband in order to have a child, before anything happened, she's already changed her posture. In other words, as, as we've told you, Dawson and I both, you, when you run into trouble, you don't turn away from the Lord. What do you do? You turn to Him and you run to Him with all your junk. You get over there with Him and you worship Him and you praise Him and may God's will be done in my life. Okay? And that's what she does. And she becomes pregnant. Now this is not a formula for a barren woman to get pregnant. Remember, this is a metaphor, a motif. I will give you my son. She prays, she worships before she ever has the son. What was God's answer to Hannah, to her statement, I will give you a son. What's the redemptive thread? Here's God's answer to Hannah. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord in his hands shall prosper. Out of his anguish of soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Barrenness, the barrenness motif. Who becomes utterly barren? Jesus Christ 
actually bears this barrenness himself. And God's answer to Hannah, you give me your son, I will give you mine. Not part way, not halfway, not a little bit. He doesn't come and visit with you. He's going all the way. He's going to the cross. He's going to be separated from you and everyone else. Not to just reverse barrenness, but to eliminate it altogether. And in the church, fruitfulness is what God has called us to and promised. Barrenness is not just reversed. It's dead. And when you approach your life and you see things going awry, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Think about that. Remember the gospel. Hannah gives her son to God. And what does God do? gives his son to us. To Hannah, Okana, all of us. Thanks be to God. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this manifold kindness that you show us. It truly is uh, something to behold. And we ask that you would now feed us in our hearts by faith as we remember our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. Amen.